0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Sets Podcast. My guest this week is a man who needs no introduction, so I won't give one. We'll get the history. Lior Cohn, whose present gig, after a long, illustrious career in the music business, is the global head of music for YouTube and Google.
1: Lior, good to have you here. Thank you, Bob. I'm happy to be here.
0: Let's start from the beginning. Now, you were born in New York. That's correct.
1: But you lived in Israel, right? My first three years, yes.
0: Okay. So you
1: immediately moved to Israel only until age three, and then you moved to where? I went back to New York. Back to New York. What did your father do for a living? Well, my dad is a was a child psychiatrist. Child psychiatrist. And was there music in the house? Enormous amounts of music. So from New York, we moved uh, to Los Feliz on the east side. And here. what year did you move to Los Feliz? Los Feliz in probably 66. Okay. And there was a lot of music because my father was the first person that connected the intercom system to his record player. And so he loved Dixieland jazz and, and chamber music. So throughout the house, all we heard was uh, Dixieland jazz and, and chamber music. Now, but the mid-60s is the heyday of music in Los
0: Angeles. So were
1: you an active record buyer, radio listener? Well, it was a little kid then. Little kid. Okay. So what do you my remember? Eldest, my brothers were My oldest brother was My parents were very active um social people in uh, we attended all the love-ins. Oh and, really? So they were hipsters? Um they weren't hipsters they're were more hippies. My my father was instrumental with the classroom without walls, the community center school. And Antioch and all of that stuff. He's, uh, you know, and my mother was a a real active woman too. So we were surrounded by a lot of love and and we're politically active. We try to elect McGovern and attended all the lovins.
0: Really? So what were those experiences like? Because, you know, a lot of people, that was before the internet. People would only read about that. They didn't actually have the experience.
1: Well, I was very young, but um, a lot of people... um, I remember, I'm um, going. Some of the Lovins happened at Griffith Park. I don't know if you know that. No, I don't. Yeah, and uh, um, it was just uh, it was an extension. I actually grew up in the real Hotel California. My mother had what people would re- refer to as a salon, where we had poetry readings, art um, exhibitions, um, book fairs, uh, a- anything, political rallies. The house was full of people all the time, and um, we used to house a lot of artists, fine painters that stayed in our home sometimes, upwards of a decade. So, did you like
0: that or not like that?
1: Oh, I loved it. It's the only thing I knew. I loved um, the interaction between you know all t- sorts of people. It was it was strange at times, but um, you know that's what I knew. So.
0: And then people always ask, the children of psychiatrists, it's, that's also all you knew. Do you have any feeling
1: good, bad insights, not insights? Well, I think that uh, I was very lucky because uh, I, there was a lot of love in the house. My father was a very high intellect. Uh, um, Is he alive, still alive? No, unfortunately. We didn't actually um, do sports together. So we were four boys
0: and where um, are you in the hierarchy?
1: I'm number two. Okay. And our father um son's activity was more taking Schwitz's. Um, <laughs>
0: Explain to my audience in case they don't know what a Schwitz is.
1: That's a sauna. And um
0: was this in the Fairfax area?
1: No, this was at the Jewish Community Center in Las Feliz. Okay. And he would tell us stories, Yiddish, mostly Yiddish stories. Do you speak Yiddish? I don't. You understand my, it? N- not, I, not much. But okay. it's very descriptive language, as you right. know. So, um, that was that was our the extent of the the. I don't know. We just um. Did well, my a lot father, my father would constantly tell stories which actually had a
0: lesson or a moral. Was that the type of story your father no, would tell?
1: No, no, imaginative stories, long illustrative stories, really beautiful stories. He wasn't spending his days trying to educate us. You know, we were living life and. I think living life in a pretty awesome way. So you went to
0: one of these schools without walls yourself?
1: No, I was the black sheep of the family. I'm um, Actually, um, was the first uh, uh, test case of Ritalin. Um, my dad signed me up for it, and I was a very hyperactive kid. And all my brothers went there, but I went to a more traditional school, thank God. And do you still take Ritalin to this day? I don't. When no. did
0: you stop taking the riddle in
1: just before going to college? And mm-hmm. you think it helped or you think it was a big mistake. Oh no, I think definitely it helped.
0: Okay, so you went to a traditional school.
1: Mhm. And this was in Las Vegas? Correct. John Marshall High School.
0: Okay. And when did you music really drove the culture back then, but when did you start a personal affinity with music?
1: So what what's interesting is that all my brothers were huge record collectors and they had lots of posters on the wall. I never rec- collected a record, nor did I have a poster on the wall. Wow. And, but it was interesting because they were all locked in their rooms with a very particular style of music and they didn't cross pollinate. I was the one who was in each one, each of my brother's rooms, listening to all types of music. So I was open for the experience. They were, you know, always arguing which is the, you know, best artist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that was that just wasn't my thing.
0: And what did you like back then? Do you remember?
1: Um, I remember um, being moved by the Delta Blues. Um, my brother had a big thing going on with the Delta Blues, um, Freddie King. I remember Janis Joplin, all all of that. Um, stuff i i had my first kiss with carol king tapestry i mean i don't know it was um they were all over the place and so you
0: go to high school and and what's your high school experience like
1: um my high school experience was um pretty good it's you know Los Feliz back then was a sleepy little village it was the pre Strip malls, you know, those four parking spots with the P.O. box and the Chinese food. Which are
0: all over Los Angeles. If you haven't been to Los Angeles, you don't know. But from one end of the
1: spectrum, from the valley all the way, Orange County, endless strip malls. What a a disaster of urban planning. But I fortunately grew up in Los Feliz prior to um, strip malls. It was a sleepy little village. And, you know, we lived basically in Griffith Park. And I don't know, it was a wonderful um, upbringing, door always open. Um, Were you on any of the athletic teams in high school? So I was a quarterback and I lost my elbow. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did you lose your elbow? I went to throw a long pass and I got caught and had several surgeries. And we, of course, I said, lived in Griffith Park and I, I had a cast on and, I picked up a set of $3 clubs at a garage sale, and that summer played golf one with one arm, and then became— And Roosevelt? Um, not Roosevelt. It was Coolidge. I okay. don't know if you remember Coolidge. No, I don't. It, it was considered the number one pitch and putt in the uh, country. Where was it? It was, you know— uh, a football field away from Roosevelt. It's, For those yeah. that
0: don't know, Roosevelt is a par-3 across the street from the Greek theater yeah. on one end of Griffith Park.
1: I, I, I ended up playing there, but that summer I played exclusively Coolidge, and um, I became a great golfer after that. You how's, know, your,
0: how's your elbow today?
1: It's a gimp elbow. It doesn't straighten out. And um, I don't know. It probably helps my golf game. I, who knows?
0: And so— after high school, you go to co- directly to college?
1: Um, yes, I did.
0: And you went in Miami? Correct. Any specific reason why you went to Miami?
1: Well, I uh, was reacquainted with my biological father, who um, insisted that if he were to pay for my college education, I had to go east of the Mississippi River. And it was three weeks before um, school was going to start and he says I'll get you into any college at the time he was living in Nigeria in Africa. And so I threw a dart and I hit Key West and 3 weeks later I was at the University of Miami. I was the only Southern Californian. It's like absurd like <laughs> right. who, who from Southern California would ever think about going to the University of Miami but man, did I pick the right time. My timing is always really good, Bob. That's the thing. You know, I went during the Cocaine Cowboy era um, when they did the 30 on 30 at the U when we became national champions um, many years in a row. And it was just an extraordinary time to be in Miami. It was actually the only true trauma I had was it was the first time that I've ever bumped into a Jap. And I remember. Why don't you explain to the audience what you mean? A Jap is a Jewish-American prince or princess. And I remember calling— And it's
0: funny because how do you feel as a Jew and I'm a Jew too? You can use the word Jap. How about if a non-Jew uses the word term Jap? I,
1: it doesn't matter to okay. me. I think it's very descriptive. So I remember talking to my mother and I said, um, Imale, there's these guys there are in really fancy cars. They listen to a lot of— um, saturday night fever and they have a star of david's on their chest and it just i can't figure out what planet they came from (laughs) and she couldn't help me either because we came from california all our um friends were basically hippie jewish families and so um that was an interesting dynamic for me to witness that at that stage of my life and 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 I don't know it was
0: well, I know the similar experience I grew up in the suburbs fifty miles from New York City in Connecticut, and I went to college where uh forty five percent of the people were prep school and you had these very rich non jews It was a very edu- edu- I never ran into people like that before, so yeah. being out irrelevant makes you more worldly,
1: yeah, well, you know. It was interesting. What uh, what can I say? It was you know for me, it was a culture shock. Um, but I actually became very very close friends with many of the Latin American Jewish um, um, kids that okay. sent their ki- um, from South America and Central America. And
0: when pure serendipity, or there was an affinity, or why
1: there a there was a huge um, community. Um, Many of the Jewish families from Central and South America sent their kids to the University of Miami. So, you know, I uh, went to the Hillel. You know, I met other people. So um, we became very close friends. And do you
0: maintain those relationships? Not really, no. Odd. Okay, but just going back to the degree you're comfortable talking about, you said your biological
1: father. Sure. Can you explain what was going on there? So my um, parents... Um, divorced when I was an infant. Um, my parents met uh, liberating Israel, and my father was one of the commanders of the Battle of Harel, which is the hills leading up to Jerusalem. He, my mother comes from a very, very famous family. My great grandfather is one of the signers. One of the pioneer families um, was the um, founder of Bank Mizrahi. He was Rabbi Cook's assistant. Uh, He went to... He was invited before immigrating to Palestine um, to the Basel conference with Herzl. Um, He witnessed Herzl and invited him to his factory in Poland. He... um, Herzl came to the factory, gave an incredible speech, and the very next day, my um, great-great-grandfather sold the business and moved from a, a home that had 55 bedrooms to barrack-style living in Jerusalem. Where was where and, was the
0: home with 55 bedrooms?
1: In Wuz. Okay. In Poland. It was the epicenter of the golden era of Jewish life which was in Poland, um, in the 1500s, the, um, Polish king decided that he was going to create a society that was free of religious persecution and everybody was able to practice. That's why, um, Poland was such an epicenter for Jewish culture. And, um, you know, that lasted a couple hundred years.
0: And what year did your grandfather then move
1: to Jerusalem? Around 1914, 15, very early on.
0: Okay, and you were telling the story of your biological father. So
1: my biological father um, was didn't come from such an incredible family, very nice family, but um, not distinguished like um, my mother's family. And she didn't want him to be in the... Um, have a career in the army. So she encouraged him to get out of the pressure cooker and and go and study engineering in New York City. And they had a very difficult life together. He really wanted to continue his his, uh, career in the military. Uh, He was a security guard, a janitor, all while going to school, a lot of pressure in in the house, and he was a uh, um, very physical. And um, my mother just couldn't take it anymore, so decided to uh, get a divorce, and and that's how it happened. I didn't see him for many many years. He became a, a, a an engineer, and then uh, a specialist in building huge infrastructure. Primarily in third world countries, and went on to have this big, very big career and, and so of the four kids in the family, he's
0: the father of how many
1: um my eldest and myself and did he get married again and have children again? He did, and so you have step
0: brothers sisters
1: well uh, I consider them all brothers and sisters. I don't like that step thing
0: and and you have regular contact with them,
1: yes. And yeah.
0: so he ultimately had his second family where?
1: Um, they started in Nigeria, then went to Switzerland, um, and then to Israel.
0: Okay, so he was financially successful. Very. And your ultimate feeling about him, you tell the story of him paying for college. You, did you have how much contact with you? Have, and you feel good about him? About
1: no, no, no. Very little contact um, and a very rough guy. And he always dangled money. Um, the rabbi, the accountant, the homegala he had all sorts of rules of how you were a- able to inherit his money. And I didn't play by any of the rules. And I was the one, only one cut out of the will. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you know in advance of his death that you were cut out of the will? I didn't know it in advance, but I had no interest in it right. e- either. It would, it's would, it was better for, um, my um brother and sister, my two brothers and sister and, and I, I was fine with that. Okay. So you go
0: to the university of Miami. Are mm-hmm. you involved in music at all there?
1: Yeah. I was, uh, the director, the student organizer of, of concerts.
0: So, okay. You say you listened to music in your brother's rooms. What motivated you to do that?
1: I don't know. I'm active and, I, you know, I, I don't actually know the story. Sorry.
0: And so, who do you remember some of the acts you brought?
1: Yeah, I brought Loggins and Messina, and I'm drawing a blank. But I had a pretty good run there.
0: Now, University of Miami, even to this day, is has a very famous music school. Were you involved with that at all? Not at all. Okay, so then you graduate from University of Miami. I do after after the traditional four years. I did. And then, what was the next step?
1: Oh, believe it or not, the next step was I thought that I could be a shrimp farmer in Ecuador. Okay. what
0: well, did you know somebody was a shrimp farmer in Ecuador?
1: So my roommate was the grandson of the president of Ecuador. He didn't speak a lick of English. And I remember one year his English started improving. He told me about his uncle that loved shrimps and he dug a ditch in his backyard and and made some very good shrimps and one other time he came back he said that little ditch in the backyard is a couple miles wide and that was the beginning of the shrimp farming industry and i thought because the university of miami had a big marine biology you know center so i thought that i could actually do business in ecuador and you know be on the front end of that But that didn't work out very well. And did you actually go to Ecuador and try? I did. Mm -hmm. How long did that last? Um, That lasted about uh, nine months. And it didn't work out because? Uh, Just political situations. It got funky down there. Okay, so you leave Ecuador and then you go where? I go to Los Angeles, back to my parents' home. And my mother helped organize me to work for the National Bank of Israel in Beverly Hills and. Uh, that's called Bank Liumi.
0: Right. And what did you do for Bank Liumi?
1: I was a financial analyst. I basically counted uh, Persian money because uh, the Shah had just fallen and they were racing to Beverly Hills. So the job sucked. I didn't have a window and there was no finance being done. It was just a horrible job for me.
0: And you did that for how long?
1: I did that for six months. And you're living in your parents' house? Uh, no, I had uh, my own crib Okay, in, in Beachwood or somewhere in that that's area. The,
0: that's the canyon up by uh, Griffith Park. So, okay, so you're frustrated with that. And What's your next move?
1: Well, my friends were throwing lots of parties. And this was the beginning of, there's some very famous clubs, Power Tools and Radio. Radio actually being the first one. And... They were throwing parties, and they were trying to encourage me to come in and work with them. They were having so much fun, um, and I just felt like I shouldn't bounce around. My mother got me this job. I was just going to focus, And but I was miserable, and that ran its course. I just couldn't do it anymore, so I said I'd join them, but I had to think of some other spin, some something that I could do to add value i just didn't want to ride along them so and this was
0: a full-time business for them
1: i, I wouldn't say it a full-time business it wasn't for it, it they did parties sporadically okay. um, but they were making a lot of money at the time and i remember that i was driving by the stardust ballroom and i pulled over tell where is the stardust ballroom It's an iconic place. It's not there any longer, but it was on Sunset and Western. It was one of the most important venues in Los Angeles. It's actually where the beginning of the punk scene started. So what happened was the owners were um, bought at sight unseen from Korea. They are very um, fabulously wealthy, and they're trying to leave... And they got sold the Bill of Goods, you know, Hollywood right. um, nightclub on Sunset Boulevard. It was a seedy. Is the wrong side of the freeway. It was at the wrong side of the freeway. So I said to them, hey, maybe I could, you know, paint and, and and put some shows in here. And they said they they would be thrilled. And so that's how I started. And so the value you added to your friends was finding the venue? The venue, but I also thought about because Bob, I, I'm I'm basically a very curious person. So there was these posters all over Los Angeles, very big, big posters, and it was they were colorful and bright, and it Uncle Jam's Army. Have you ever heard of it? No, I didn't move to L.A. You know until after this scene. Okay, so Uncle Jam's Army. Was had poster boards all over the place, but I didn't know what it was. It's a sports arena, and they gave me the time. So I ended up going there. And lo and behold, it was, you know, at the Civic Center, jam-packed, um, full of kids from South Central L.A., um, listening to breakbeats. There weren't even rappers at the time. And it was exciting for me. And then... I. Kept coming back to the parties, and then they started importing um, rappers from New York um, that had singles. But because it was a you know city facility at eleven o'clock, they had to shut their party down. And my party didn't get started till midnight. So I said maybe I could hire some of the talent that they had to play a second gig up in Hollywood, and that's how I started doing my thing so what year is this this was eighty-one eighty two. Eighty one eighty two. so how often would you have a gig at the ballroom um there was a there was a period of time I, I had a regular weekend party uh friday and saturday in a little small part of the ballroom and then every once in a while i'd imagine a show and you know so throw, throw much bigger ones like and, concerts not par I had parties and concerts.
0: And so the concerts who were what was some of the talent for the concerts?
1: So uh, the one that that really changed my life was actually my, the first one and it was social distortion, circle jerks, fear, fishbone, red hot chili peppers and run-DMC. It's quite a bill. Yeah. Well, they're all unsigned. Um I borrowed like $700 from my mom. I made 36 G's that night.
0: (laughs) What was the capacity?
1: Um, Capacity was like, um, you know, it's been a long time. So I'm thinking 3,000 people. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was really super cool, Bob. It was something just uh, I, uh, I, I still haven't come down from that moment. So, okay, you make 36 Gs. In retrospect, did you know what you're doing or you were just lucky? A hundred percent just lucky because I put on the second show with Houdini. I don't know if you know Houdini. Sure, I know Houdini. And um, I lost all that money and then some. <laughs> and I had already started spending that money, so I was really not in a good shape.
0: And you were still at Bank Liumi or you were done?
1: No, no, I was done.
0: And you still have these partners or your friends or just yourself? Oh, no, they're,
1: they're my partners. Okay, so how about security and all those other issues? I didn't know anything about any of that stuff. And
0: did you have any bad experiences?
1: And no bad experience, only love. Okay, so you made The s- only bad experience was the fear that still drives me today when I sat outside the venue thinking that there was going to be a walk-up like there was at the Run-DMC show that never showed up. And it's a pain that's below the heart and above the stomach. And I still can feel it like right this second, I could feel that pain. And, um, you know, I've been running away from that pain ever since. And at this late
0: date, why did the Houdini show not work?
1: I think it was, um, hubris that I didn't ever reflect on why the first show did. And I think it was, um, much thinner. It didn't, it, you know, the run DMC with those Hollywood bands was a statement. It was, a um, a, a combination that was built to succeed. And then Houdini was, I thought was going to draft off of that success. And I didn't have really the package, um, that made sense. So, um, You know, what can I tell you? So you lost money, but did you continue to promote concerts? No, I was done. I was done. Uh, Promotion, doing promotion, I have such a great respect for promoters because it's just really hard. It's hard on every level. Absolutely. To to do it right, it's, it's really hard on every level. But with the Run DMC show, the biggest issue I had that night was run, uh, refused to perform. And I, I didn't understand exactly what was going on. He went on stage and then he left and I went to talk to him and I said, what's the story? He says, um, I'm sure you saw it. They don't like me and they're coming to attack me. And I didn't understand exactly what he was referring to. And then I realized all these kids that were stage diving, they come on the stage and they, you know, dance around him and then fling themselves on. And I I said to him, listen, I know this sounds strange, but it's only a deep appreciation for what you do. And he absolutely looked at me and didn't believe me. And I kept talking and, and convincing him. I said, you have to, you have to trust me that this is simply a, an appreciation for what you do. He says, okay, I'm, I'm going to give it a try. He went back on stage, and for the rest of the, his set, he helped fling little white boys off the stage. <laughs> and it was cheer bliss for him. He had the best time, and that's the person who encouraged me to come back to New York.
0: Stay right here. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Lior Cohn, head of music for YouTube and Google, here on the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. This is Bob Lefsetz. Had a great guest this week, Lior Cohn, head of music for YouTube and Google. If you ever want to see the guest as opposed to just listening, or in the case of Lior, both he and me and his Porsche Targa, follow and tune in on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for photos and videos now more with Leor Cohen. Okay, so you you're out of promotion. How long before you go to New York? Immediately, Bob. Immediately, and does
1: he promise you a gig, or you just you know? So he put me in touch with um, Russell, his brother. His brother, and um, Russell said, "Come to New York, and you know, um, you know, my brother speaks very highly of you, and 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 let's get it on." So I sat in my parents' kitchen table and I said to them, there is these people that talk instead of sing and they want me to come to New York and my father stroked his beard (laughs) and said, son, there's an instrument called the contract. I'm certain you have no no need for it. But it's an instrument that when things don't go so well, you don't have to commit to memory what you agree to. And my mom cut him off and said, son, contract, no contract, I think you should go. And more importantly, I think you should try to avoid work. If you could find your passion, you would be a very rich man. And she wasn't referring to money. And since I'm a mama's boy, I listened to my mom. And I went. And I've avoided work my whole life. Thirty seven years in this business. And so
0: I'm, how so what do you do? You get lesson. to New York?
1: My mom told me, please call me when you get to New York. I had a friend that went to the U and transferred to Columbia University and he invited me to sleep on his floor. He lived in a welfare hotel close to Columbia University. And I was so enthusiastic about being in the music business that I went straight to the office and I pounded the door open thinking that there was going to be a marching band (laughs) and I was going to meet Russell because I never met Russell. There was no marching band. There was no Russell. In fact, he never told anybody in the office. And all three of them were in deep depression. And the reason why they were troubled was... Run DMC was at JFK and they were supposed to go on their first European tour and their road manager was on a cocaine binge and was the only one with a valid passport. And I said, well, I have a valid passport. They said, oh, can you get to JFK? So I literally, instead of calling my mom from New York, I called her from London and I said, mom, you're just not going to believe this. (laughs) And that's how I became the road manager for Run DMC. Okay, you know nothing. Zero.
0: Road manager is a guy has got to stay up 20 hours a day. Here's all the problems. How did you do in that
1: gig? First of all, these are the most amazing guys on the planet. They were enthusiastic about sharing what they had to with everybody. They were responsible. And we were a very thin... Crew, you know, our our band was Jay's needles and records, and so you know I didn't have to think about you know what what it meant to have a writer and technicians and everything like that. You know, we screwed the the needle on and had the records and and played gigs, and you know I was I'm serious person, so I was focused and I wanted to um do a good job and. I, I was very fortunate and lucky. I told you, my timing's pretty good. So how long was that European tour? That European tour was about a week and a half. And then you come back to New York and then what? In fact, you know who picked me up? And he was driving the van? Roger Ames. you Really? Yeah. Yep. For those people who don't know, Roger Ames was a
0: legendary record guy. He had London Records with Bananarama, et cetera, then went to work, I think— Polygram. Right. right. was the chairman of Polygram. Right, and then he ultimately was chairman of Warner.
1: Correct. And if you see
0: the movie 24-Hour Party, People, there's a great scene where he's trying to buy the assets of factory records. I never knew knew Roger was driving a van. I'll have to tell him that the next time uh, I see him.
1: He is an amazing record man. From Trinidad. From Trinidad. And remember, Run DMC was licensed by London Records. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's that.
0: Okay, so you're a week and a half and you're back in New York. Yes. And now you're back in the office, so they have work
1: for you? Oh, no. We were gigging all the time. So you're now a road manager. I'm a road manager, but we were gigging on the weekends, so I worked in the office um, during the week. Doing Mm what? Well... We also represented Curtis Blow. Um, I don't know. We're just you know, it's a long time ago, Bob. I'm I know it's o- a long I'm time. I'm old, Bob. Okay,
0: okay. So you're doing this. How long do you
1: play the role of road manager? I'm three and a half years road manager, never missed a gig. We never missed a gig. And once we did five gigs in a night in three different states. Never you remember
0: anything about that?
1: Never never missed a gig. We were so mobile, unlike all the kids these days that need uh, their whole block uh, to join them. We were Run, DMC, Jam Master Jay, rest in peace. Miss him every day. Runny Ray and myself. We all carried our own luggage. There was no high posting, and we got it done. And we, we felt so blessed and so fortunate and lucky.
0: Where were those five gigs? What three states were they?
1: They're like Virginia, D.C., um, Carolina. Okay, in that area. That area. Okay,
0: so after those years of you, and you were the road
1: manager only for Run DMC or for Curtis Blow and these other people. Um, no, I did some for uh the Beastie Boys. Ended up, I ended up managing the Beastie Boys. Um, was this during the Licensed to Ill
0: period, or before, or after that?
1: This was before and after. And, okay, and and during too. And yes, during too.
0: Right. Okay, do you have? No, that was nineteen eighty six. Licensed to Ill was a there was a certain amount of buzz, but that was a gargantuan record, far exceeding anybody's expectations. Did you have a belief that
1: it would be as big as it was? Not at all, not at all. I had no vision, zero vision. I was the in in the group of people. I was the operator. So, I think the vision Rick had and Russell had. And they, their heads were casted forward. My head was straight down. The Beastie Boys' first tour, I started them in Seattle in 400 seaters. By the time they got all the way down California and to Texas, um, they were an arena. So I switched. I had to switch the venues that, that fast. Started 400 and then 16,000. Just to
0: understand the business arrangement, this was Def Jam at the time, and... This was Rush Management, and Def
1: Jam were, you know...
0: So when you were the manager, you were ultimately working for Russell, or you were working
1: separately? No, no, I was working for Russell.
0: Okay, so you do that, you have the great success, and then Def Jam has a deal with Columbia?
1: Correct, and then, um, um, you know, there weren't too many people to put records out, so um, Rick... And Russell um, decided to start a record company so they could put out records that they wanted to put out. I thought the sexier side of the business was managing. And so... Um, Ironically, to a degree, it is again. It's a service business. You
0: say that with some... Heartache, heartache, heartache. Right, heartache. right. Heartache. you know. It drove
1: me out of the business. It's, it's a
0: license to starve to boot for many yeah. people. Yes. So in any event... They start this record company. Mm -hmm. And your role in the record company is?
1: I was a manager. Okay. The record company was Russell and Rick.
0: So what point do you move to the record company?
1: Well, remember, Rick leaves. Rick leaves and starts American recording. In 88. Right. Right? So it's like really short time. And then Russell actually moved to California to make movies. So, you know, I just ended up having to do it. So you ended up being and it the it was pers- scary. It was very scary. Don't don't um get it twisted to be the person that was guiding a cultural brand like Def Jam, especially with Rick gone and then Russell in Hollywood, was scary. Was really, really scary. Do you remember how many
0: acts you had on the label?
1: Um, we didn't have that many acts. Um I started signing acts and I signed one stiff after another. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't honestly. I couldn't sign an act that would sell, and I was fortunately it was like a little side imprint that I was signing this to. Or um, it was RAL, Russia Associated Label, until Rick and Russell unwound their their situation. But man, it was so scary. I honestly could not sign. Worse acts it was it was really a um, a very difficult time in my life
0: and then when does Russell come back and get involved?
1: Well, Russell comes back a few years later, but at that moment, I caught my breath and I really had a much tighter aperture of what was needed um to be successful and to write the ship and to get started again and the you know, my vision was blurry and, and with the Beasties leaving, Rick leaving, Russell, there's a lot of... Um, and I just needed a tighter aperture and, and thank God that Redman came in the door and we signed him and time for some action happened and it was the rebirth of Def Jam recordings. And the, the interesting news is that we also had Public Enemy and Slick Rick in that transitional period. So while I was um, signing stiffs and, you know, cold as ice, um, they still kept um, the shine of the label very important. And um, it helped me find my breath and, and gave me cover.
0: And at the time, are you making any money?
1: No, no. I had roommates till I was 33 years old. Okay, and so how does? I was the mayor of Alphabet City. <laughs> the Def- first bit of money that we made was one nine hundred numbers. Okay, do you remember? I that? remember. So, so um, by then, I also had a huge stable of artists. I was EPMD's manager, Eric B. and Rakim's manager, Jazzy Jeff, and the Fresh Prince's manager. Um, it goes on and on. Steady Sonic, Big Daddy Kane. It, you know, really goes. There's no, there was nothing moving. Like I made the Cold Chilling deal. There's nothing moving in rap that I wasn't inv- wasn't a part of at that time. But still, it wasn't enough money for me to move out. It was still nascent business. And then One Nine Hundred came along, and uh, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince started printing money like well explain what the deal One 900 is the person who's called is charged so right. what was the offer the offer is you could speak to the act and they would leave messages and there was months that um jazzy jeff and the fresh prince were making north of 400 thousand dollars a month
0: wow so was the key to constantly change the message or to keep people on the line
1: constantly change the message so get people to call every day yeah and what,
0: what might the message be
1: I'm old, Bob. Okay. Okay.
0: We will, we'll have to go back into the archives. Yeah. So that's how you make some real money. You get to move out. Def Jam's at Columbia. It ends up being purchased by Polygram. Tell us that story.
1: You have to understand that there was a beautiful incubation period for us at Def Jam. What I mean by that is there was much more demand than supply. The major labels actually didn't get into signing rap acts because the, the bosses of those labels made their success through rock and roll and their kids were too young. And so as far as rap was concerned, it was just noisy music um, or noise and they didn't want to invest. They thought it was a fad. They, they wanted no part of it. And we started, you know, building a real business. What I mean by incubation is we had no clout, we had no money, we had no experience, and Russell and I liked getting high. And just any one of those was enough not to be able to build a business, but because the majors were so arrogant all they had to do was drive 50 blocks and they would have seen that the demand was blowing the roof off of all the clubs uptown. So, you know, seven years goes by and now we get a little bit of money. We get a little experience, some clout getting high is not that important anymore and their kids are now starting to grow up and Donnie Einer's kid actually preferred going to a public enemy show than a Bruce Springsteen show. And that's when Donnie said, oh my God, I'm out of position. And so I had a very fragile group. They were called third base. You ever heard of them? Of course. Okay. So they didn't really like each other that much. And they were very, very fragile. Um, Search is a very inquisitive person and very tasty person. And, Donnie convinced him to start a production company. And that's put too much tension on the group. And that was behind my back. That's my partner. And At Columbia Records. At Columbia Records. And so that's how Nas got signed to Columbia Records through MC Search. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, that put a lot of- It was MC Search and it was Pete. Right.
0: And Pete writes about baseball or something these days. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And it put a lot of tension on the band. Put a lot of tension on me, and you know, because of our deal structure, we were deeply in the red, and to the tune of nineteen million dollars.
0: But it was you still. Was it a joint venture, or you still own your assets, or do you no, remember?
1: No, no, no. We didn't own our assets. They actually owned the assets. Um, we had a um, some action. Um, it's embarrassing to tell you what that action is it's it's less than what bands are getting signed for today
0: but were they made you were 19 million in the red have they made money on the deal
1: oh of course they made money right but um they wanted to go full tilt boogie in rap and they thought they can do it themselves and they thought that the only barrier was their focus and money and they're both focused and they're going to invest And, um, they gave me the option to, um, buy the red balance back and then get out of the building. And it wasn't really an option. They were, they were flinging us out of the building. And it was scary because I didn't let anybody at, at the company know because it would have been hugely distracting and and difficult for people. So I remember every going, trying to find record companies to partner with and, um, the only one was Alan Levy and Polygram. and actually he gave us 26 million for that piece. and um, so we gave them 19 and it was the first little bit of capital that Russo and I got. And um, we actually was, again, very good timing. I actually shipped Regulate at Columbia, and they weren't paying attention. Mm -hmm. and that went on to sell 4 million albums. So my first Def Jam Polygram experience was Warren G Regulate, sold 4 million albums. Very, very... And Alon Levy was thrilled. And Alon Levy was thrilled and excited, and we had a very interesting deal with him, very, very good deal, very forward-looking deal, because he believed that Rap Catalog was going to be... A huge, huge opportunity, especially in the multiple of, of the CD business. So um, it was really great timing for us, and it was beautiful.
0: And at that time, Def Jam is operating in what part of Polygram? Island. Island. And then they ultimately roll it up into IDJ.
1: Um, no, it was PLG. Right. Um, with Rick Dabas and Johnny Barbas. Right. And... Um, um, Peter Kupke. And then it was really a difficult time because Alan Levy wanted to buy the um, business and Russell wanted to sell and offered $50 million. And I said, I'm not interested in that. And I had a block on it. And Russell was very upset. And he was, um, our lawyer was making him very scared that because of me blocking, um, he wasn't going to end up with any money. And it was a very stressful period for the two of us. And I just believed that we could um, improve the multiple. And I remember that Russell was pounding me so hard, and it was actually Danny Goldberg that went around my back to my my company and told them that I'm selling the company. This is
0: when he's running Mercury.
1: When he was running Mercury, but he was very close to Alain Levy. And I fell into depression and I, um, at the time my wife said, your health is much more important than, you know, this type of stuff, just sell the company. And I agreed to sell it. And then four days later, the board rejected, um, that $50 million deal and, um, they rejected because two days earlier they met secretly. Um, this guy from Phillips met secretly with Edgar Brofman. and because of that, they didn't want any transactions to right. happen. So again, great timing. Right. And
0: they were talking about buying the uni- or merging with Universal assets. Yeah.
1: No, there. No, Universal was, was buying. Was sell it.
0: Was he, was buying Polygram. Was course. buying
1: Polygram. Now remember. The reason why Phillips was selling Polygram is they invented the CD. So they're the reasons why they gave the green light to Alan Levy because they discovered that the CD was a powerful opportunity, but it was also the perfect master. So they rode the upside. They allowed him to buy Island, um, A&M, Motown. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of, um, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, massive. No one's ever seen prices like that because they knew the conversion from tape to CD was going to be a windfall. But they also knew that it was the perfect master. So they allowed Alan to build this over a decade and then sold it from underneath him.
0: You, were, you believe they were totally conscious that the internet was coming and they had a perfect master. Oh, h- 100%.
1: 100%. They made a fortune. They sold to Edgar for, you know, close to $12 billion. Right. And the only problem is that Edgar Universal bought PolyGram, but the largest market share in North America was a little company called Def Cham Recordings. And that deal didn't go through. And so Doug had bought. Doug Morris. Doug Morris had bought this. Um, was brought along um, by Edgar, and we had just dropped um, Ja Rule, DMX, and Jay-Z all in the month of December. Everybody told me you can never release a record in December. December is off-limits because the retailers are too focused on stocking. It's taboo to do that. And I felt like um, parents started becoming less and less under um, knowledgeable of what to give as a gift of music to their children. So they gave them cash. And the closer I got to Christmas, um, the better I was um, going to fare.
0: So you literally delayed the release knowing that the kids would blow the cash.
1: And it was all during the transition and the due diligence of Polygram and the Universal merger. Okay. So remember, Island, Mercury... A&M, all of those executives were frozen because they didn't know what was happening. Everybody was frozen, but I was driving my multiple. And so all of Polygram was frozen. Who's going to be the boss? Who's going to survive? All that swirl was happening. And I dropped three very important and influential albums that I'm proud of um, in the month of December at that moment, and it was a, um, a stunning moment.
0: Okay, but, so the deal goes through, and where does that leave Def Jam?
1: Um, that leaves Def Jam in the catbird seat. And unfortunately, um, we have a natural clock on our deal, and there was time for for um, the deal to, to. I, I tried to fight it even then, thank God I didn't fight it, because <laughs> the the, um, the month that we sold was the first month of the decline for the last 18 years. Okay? So then 1990. So what
0: was that price? I'm sure it's public.
1: A big number. Okay. It was $330 million for the total and Russell and I owned um, um 45%. So that's a good paycheck. It was fabulous. <laughs> it was just um, it, it was amazing. It was amazing. Listen, um you know, it's that type, of, that type of money has no context to me because I don't live like that, so... Um, so where is the money today? Um, the money is with my ex-wife. Well, that's half of it. Um, um, with me, it's... I it's, mean, is oh, it invested? Yeah, it's invested, certainly. It's and invested. how much is
0: real assets, how much is stock market, or most stock
1: market? I, I would say um, real assets are um, 40%, and 40% is... Um, more uh, in the equities, and then twenty percent is is more um, liquid and and stuff like okay, that. Okay,
0: and how active are you in managing that money? Or I'm not ever, very active. Not very active. I at suck
1: all. at I suck at that. So you
0: hired people? Yes. And you're smarter people, your regular-
1: smarter people than myself. So how do you end that's up? That's the that by the way, that's the secret of my success: is surround yourself with super dope people, give them a lot of sunlight and water. And just hug it out. So how do you end up running IDJ? Well, I had the most insane month. Um, You know, I sold the company for a big number. And part of that, um, when you sell a company, you're obliged to work for them. Um, And I was obliged to work for them. So they asked me to look over Mercury Island and Def Jam. And I remember, you know, on a whiteboard playing around with the names and I didn't know who, I couldn't trace the steps back to someone with Mercury. So I couldn't find the heartbeat there. And I was, but I was able to find Chris Blackwell and the heartbeat there. That's Island Records. Yeah, so I, I I decided to call it Island Def Jam, and I, I I um Def Jam Island doesn't sound as good as Island Def Jam, and the the IDJ sounds really dope.
0: Okay, and to what degree? Because Blackwell ultimately leaves, but when you start, how involved is Blackwell?
1: Blackwell's already left. Okay, the building. So now you're many, running many, it- many, many, many years. Okay, before. you're
0: you're running at Lock, Stock, and Barrel.
1: Well, I told you I surround myself with super dope people. So. So,
0: okay, so in your tenure at IDJ, yes, sir. What what did you learn?
1: I learned that the entrepreneurialism of rap music and the commingling of of artists and the um, determination to find audiences and connect them with the artist, is very, very powerful. And just that, you know, I felt like I could do anything.
0: And that runs its course, and you ultimately end up at Warner, but even in a bigger position, bigger title. And what do you learn in your tenure at, White, at Warner?
1: My tenure at Warner is that it was the first time I've ever come across or had an experience with private equity people. So I had no context that they bought and sold. And I had simply no context that they bought and had a four-year horizon. So had I known that, I probably wouldn't have left. um, To take the job. To take the job. Right. Um, Because it was uh, too distracting. I, I, I I didn't like change in that type of way. I like change in other types of way, but not in that type of way.
0: You mean in terms of
1: set the ultimate sale point? Yeah, I don't. I don't like. I, I don't like change. Financial change. I like structural change. I like change, but not um, um, financial change. Because. So when you're at Warner,
0: to what degree in the back of your mind are you? Hear, are you feeling that pressure? Hey, I got to make
1: the numbers. We are going to do. We're going to sell. I. 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 Um. I didn't pay attention to that. I was focused in other things. And the only time where it crested against me was when they decided to sell it. And I had to meet with the 30-odd bidders over and over and over and over again. And I got further and further away from the music right, and further away from the artist, And I felt like we were doing a stunning job. I mean, to you know Electra and Atlantic were in really tough positions Warner was living on its past and so I felt merging um Electra and Atlantic together we found our heartbeat and and then I was working on on the Warner Brothers situation and you know we we I think really started the 360 business that was a very important part of my strategy and I was very proud of it. So, and, you know, and then to get sideswiped into having to, to talk to financial people about, you know, a transaction was a buzzkill was very difficult for me. We'll return to this
0: conversation with Lior Cohn, head of music for YouTube and Google right after this. This is Bob Lefsetz. Do you like hearing from the heavies? I love talking to them, and that's exactly what I'll be doing at my Music Media Summit in Santa Barbara at the end of April. Take your wallflower role to the next level by actually meeting the players, maneuvering and manipulating the chessboard. Go to musicmediasummit.com for tickets and more information. And now, more with Lior Cohn. So it ends and you start 300. Yes. And you have a big hit with Fetty Wap. Yes, So what would you learn at 300?
1: I learned at 300 that the barrier of entry—I had a hunch at Warner between subscription and advertising that there is going to be a huge sea change. The ability to build audience and to identify an audience um, without having to go through the expense of a physical product was a liberation for— Um, young people to start labels and to start getting into the game. And I had a hunch that they couldn't keep me out of the party. And so I cobbled together a little bit of money and I went to work. And lo and behold, I realized that the true remaining barrier of entry is simply a little bit of capital, not a lot of it. And you could actually... Um make a lot of hay i th-
0: so if someone were to start today, how much capital do they need?
1: uh it's all different. it all depends. I started with fifteen million a little little sum of money. I heard that l a just raised seventy five right you know it's a, it was a different thing i I believe you know we have at three hundred uh, over thirty employees now um
0: but you're but you're not involved with three hundred anymore no Greg. but
1: I'm the largest shareholder
0: oh so you're still a shareholder, yes. Okay, so you have the success with Fetty Rap. Can you tell us any more about that? What do you want to know? A How hit, do you find a
1: him? Hit, it's beautiful. He was. Um, so, did
0: you find him? The record was already done?
1: The record was already done. Um, he is a very interesting melodic rapper. Um, and it was just his time. And we signed him. So, that's the music business, Bob. Okay. Okay.
0: So, you know, today where there's so much noise in the channel, although the success of his record is a couple years back. What made he, what did you do to make the record successful? You certainly had a hit record. Without that, you're dead in the water.
1: Well, we engaged an audience. We um, went to our friends at Spotify. They supported us. Went to our friends at Apple. They supported us. Well, what did
0: that support look like?
1: The support, whether it's um, real estate in Apple or real estate in Playlist or – or uh, a video, um, at YouTube, um, the DSPs or the, these platforms, um, were happy to see us and they were happy to support an independent label and an independent artist. And we also, you know, got the record on the radio. And so what can I tell you? It's not really, it's not magical it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of talking to people. It's a lot of saying like what you do every once in a while, you go out on a limb and say, this artist is really incredible. And you put your reputation on the line and you shoot the flare up and people um, pay attention, give it a shot. And when they give it a shot, it starts working, and, and that's how...
0: Well, I guess one of the... I agree with everything you're saying, but one of the fascinating things is there was a record two Christmases ago, the end of 2016, it was a hit everywhere in the world, rag and bone man, yeah. human, never made it in America. And I have to... I mean, my fault with the label let the record down. Do you have any ideas? On what, I, why? I,
1: I, I don't want to um, um opine on something I'm not an expert at, so... I don't know whether he was focused on Australia at the time when they needed him to show right. up in places. You know, um, when you have a worldwide hit, the, the interesting thing is you can't clone yourself. And you need physical support of a record. So um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't opine on it. I, I don't know. Okay. You know, Columbia is a really good label. Okay, so, so let's go back
0: to 300. 300 is still active at this point
1: very active.
0: Okay. How do you end up at YouTube?
1: I ended up at YouTube because um, Robert Kinsel called me up and asked me if I could. He's He's the big boss right. at YouTube. And he asked if I could surface him some candidates to be the head of music and that it was time for that category to have someone that woke up every day specifically focused on building that business. And I surfaced him a couple people over the, you know, four-month s- span. And then he calls me out of the blue and says, you know, he used this expression, you're my you're my dick. I had no idea what he meant. He's I said, what? He says, Dick Cheney, and I still don't, to this day, I don't really know what he's referring to, but he says, I love the candidates, but I prefer you doing the job. And I told him I have zero interest in the job, and I was having too much fun at 300. I think 300 is going to be worth, you know, half a billion dollars in five years. I really believe that this is the era just, Mark my words, this is going to be the biggest gold rush ever in media, and it's going to be around recorded music. It can never be activated until the impresario roams again. And that's the critical gating factor. All Everything is ready for them. And then impresarios is the unemployable. The Chris Blackwells of this generation, the Ahmed Erdogans, Those that, um, you know, have a very specific point of view who know how to um, engage with talent and they could build huge businesses once again. I think the environment is ripe for that. But going back to YouTube, I really, you know, I was having hits and I had no interest in doing the job. It's like um, it wasn't the right time. And they kept being persistent and kept asking me. And then it was my partner, Kevin Lows who said to me, you know, you always talk about your biggest fear about the music business is the high concentration of distribution. So if you actually worked with Google and YouTube and helped them work with the labels and help build another distribution channel that's healthy and another player, um, you will bring diversity to distribution and you could be a great gift back to an industry that you really love. And that really resonated to me. So um, this is my gift back to the industry. If I could get Google and YouTube to help bring diversity to distribution, I think with four distributors the value of the business will accrete back to the labels and to the artists. If it's only two, we're in really bad shape. It would be a very bad day for creation. So,
0: okay. So, what is the vision for YouTube now that you have this job?
1: Um, the vision is to work very closely with the labels. So, prior to me getting there, they were mostly a negotiating entity. They negotiated with the corporate centers. And they would go away and come back and negotiate three years later. And there was no infrastructure of people facing off with the labels, the people that actually signed the acts, market and deliver the acts. They were only facing off with the corporate people. And you know, in the last 20 years, what do you do? Get rid of a corporate person or an A&R person? An A&R person. Corporate person. Sorry. Corporate, really the corporate entities of all these companies shrunk massively. Um, the, the true power is with the labels, okay? Everybody knows that that um, um, the labels are the ones with the power, but not only the power they' they're the ones that are in the trenches. And so what's happened in the past is you know when YouTube or Google were, went to negotiate, You know, it was their Super Bowl. Oh, they're going to negotiate against the Google team. And I'm not really that interested in that. I actually want to go back to back with the companies, with the labels. So we built an infrastructure um, to understand what the labels' um, priorities are and to help break acts. And to me, that's one of the most important things that we could do at YouTube and Google is to understand what's important to the labels and and to the artists and to the management community, and to um, help um, break some acts. That's one thing. The second thing is to convert our funnel. So, really, the YouTube Google people have been very raw. They don't understand why they're so vilified, and they felt like they built this incredible ecosystem on a global scale um, to have people engage with media and pay with their eyeballs. And instead of getting a pat in the back, they got vilified because that was in their, uh, um, the industry's mind, siphoning opportunity from subscription, which was still nascent, um, but growing. and, So one of the things that I told um, them and it it didn't take a lot of convincing, they were already believing that so um, that their funnel can convert into subscription. There are people in that funnel that have a job that are leaned into music that should pay a subscription. um, um, And, and that's what will happen. So between promotion and helping the labels and, and the artist community, um, break artists, and then converting our funnel. So it's simply not just advertising, that it's also— um, So
0: your goal is to make it a subscription business?
1: It, no, no. My goal is to add a subscription business on top of an advertising business. Um, Bob, this industry's growth com- is going to come from b- both advertising— And subscription. I know everybody's drunk on subscription, and it's really a nice thing, and it's great. But when you talk about the world, there are going to be way many more people paying with their eyeballs than paying a a monthly subscription. Okay? That's going to be fact. Um, And so we want to play in both Um, Okay, since
0: you brought up industry criticism, what do you say to the industry that says the split is not good enough on YouTube?
1: Um, The split is great. The pie will grow. It's the same argument that they had with Spotify. At the beginning, everybody was screaming about Spotify. It wasn't the split, as you could see um, from their public filing, that the split is actually enormous. Right. It was the size of the pie, and so um, you know, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars that is still stuck in traditional media that will flow to the digital um, players, and that and that money will create to the labels. And as the as more and more countries come online, um, that pie will be getting bigger. The growth in advertising is. Out of control, Bob. Uh, out of control. Okay? So before they blink, I know everybody's all geeked over subscription, but don't forget how much money is going to be made in advertising. So when you
0: say the money stuck in traditional media, can you amplify that a little bit? Like
1: television and radio. So you're talking about advertising money? Advertising money. The levy broke in America, but in other countries, it's still, they're still stuck in traditional media, but it's starting to break there too. I mean, everybody has kids. They see how they they digest media. They don't digest media on an appointment. You know, uh, on a um, right. You know, a regular way. It's they, on demand. It's on demand. So. Now, the
0: other complaint that people have in the industry is about takedown notices that they can't issue one takedown notice, but they're constantly playing whack-a-mole with videos on
1: YouTube. Bob, I invite all of those people on my dime to go to Zurich, to our campus, um, that is dedicated to Content ID. Bob, when I tell you they've built a world-class Content ID system that is 99% um, 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 fail-proof... That's the case. Please, who's ever listening, you yourself, come to Zurich and please meet all the engineers that have built a first-class content ID system. So you think at this point in time,
0: if I issue one takedown notice, that should take down all the pirate copies of the song That's correct. Okay. That's correct. So you think it's superfluous. The people who are saying, oh, I have to constantly issue takedown notices, you don't think that's true?
1: No, no. At least it's not as true as it used to be.
0: So you don't believe the law needs to be changed, that this is a business solution?
1: Oh, absolutely. This is a business solution.
0: Okay. Let's go back to how you're going to help the labels. What have you done and what can you do to help a label promote a record?
1: So, Bob, did you know that 80% of all of watch time on YouTube is internal recommendation engine?
0: I did not know that. Shocking, isn't that? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: When I first started, I thought it was absolutely the reverse. Eighty percent was searched, and then maybe some other remnant was um, promoted. But no, eighty percent of all of watch time, billions of hours of watch time, is internal recommendation. You get lost in YouTube. I wouldn't say I get lost. I'm on YouTube constantly, but but you you don't go. You don't go. You don't. um, Um, dial something up, and then all of a sudden, the next thing they they well. First of
0: all, I'm sophisticated enough to know I switch off autoplay, and I get much more email and recommendations of people. So I'm on YouTube many times a day. I'm not the average person. Okay.
1: Well, if you were the average person, you would realize that it would start to get to know you and start servicing serving you um, entertainment that you most likely going to appreciate I, I
0: certainly get some of that on the right hand side. Absolutely. So yeah.
1: So um so if I could surface to the um, um the priorities of the labels as an input to the algorithm, um I could probably do a really good service. So is
0: that active today?
1: That's accurate.
0: Okay, so you you go to a label, they have a priority. You believe the priority is valid, and you will get it in the YouTube system to make sure it's put in front of X number of eyeballs.
1: That's accurate.
0: Now, it's in other streaming services, they look at issues of save. They look at how, how long. All of that is
1: important, and so you look at all that data. too. All of that is important. Yes, all of that. Whether okay, it's... so the
0: biggest YouTube hit of the last year, or one of the biggest, is the Despacito.
1: Was that purely organic, or did YouTube help? No you you want to hear something really interesting? I, I try to reverse engineer that, and the beginning of that party was that the manager bought a hundred thousand dollars worth of TrueView ads. Explain is, to my
0: audience what those are.
1: A TrueView ad is a new format of advertising. There, you know, Google's constantly iterating. Um, around advertising and the, um, um, that actually got pe- the the right eyeballs engaged and the right eyeballs started um, affecting the algorithm and then it spread like wildfire. Okay,
0: a little slower. He bought the ads and the ads translated into view and then obviously the, there's the a-
1: ads were highly targeted. And once he got people engaged, it started building a wildfire, and that's what happened.
0: Okay. So if someone had a – do you think that's replicable at this point in time?
1: Um, I don't – you know, Despacito was a, a fabulous – Right. Uh, um, record I'm, and video. Yeah, record and video. But I do believe that the digital world allows you to be way more targeted in your audience. Um, we are learning a lot like for example we are now thinking about related artists and how we could help the labels surface their content um by them choosing what the related artists would be that audience would be and putting that that content after those artists is
0: that a personal choice or algorithmic
1: um it's both okay it's both now it's inputs
0: if you go back a couple of years it was not uncommon for a hit track on youtube to have many more views than streams on spotify frequently that's the reverse now Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. so what is the future of video i.e a youtube clip And how important is that in breaking an act?
1: I think um, context is, I think we're in an audio-visual world. Actually, Chuck D is the one who says this perfectly, uh, who I encourage you, he's got an incredible story. He would be a great person to do a podcast with. Mm -hmm. But we used to be in an audio-only world, and I think we're in an audio-visual world. So I think video brings context and I think we're searching for context, you know, the levy broke, right? There used to be very tightly curated ways that you were touched by music. And now um, the levee broke, and now there's many, 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 many bands. So now we need a certain amount of curation and some more context. I couldn't agree more. It's a tyranny of choice. It's overwhelming. And I, yeah, and, and I think that the you know, 3.4.0 version of the internet, we would start seeing more curation and video is important to help provide context as well.
0: Okay. Now, we live in an era where tracks are less dominant in the culture than they ever were before. It's really spread out. You know, you go back to when we grew up, a hit track literally everybody in society knew, whereas we talk about the number one track, Fewer people know that, but I'm leading up to something different. Why is hip hop the most dominant sound today?
1: You know, I've been watching you raise the banner of of hip hop. I don't think it was always you weren't a flag bearer of of hip hop. I've always thought that hip hop was big for the last, you know, twenty. It was big, but it's 20, gigantic now. Twenty years. It was gigantic then too, um, Bob. But I it mean, dominates. I now. mean, I mean. You know, I don't actually know. I guess maybe I live in my own little bubble. I I remember Eminem selling 10 million plus albums. I mean, that wasn't chopped liver. I, I've been feeling hip hop's dominance for a long time. It's scary, too, because, you know, it's now multi-generational. It used to be I was always worried about the multi-generational aspect. Does my son really want to share his records with me? Where is the battle cry that is in the debate between father and son about that is not music. That's just a bunch of crap. Right. We're bumping the same music right now. And How old is your son? My son's 23.
0: Okay. What does he do?
1: He's an A&R at 300. He's a really remarkable music person.
0: Okay. But getting back to this hip hop thing, I don't want to say that hip hop wasn't big. But if you go on Spotify, which I believe is the most accurate chart today because of consumption, out of the Spotify top 50 in the United States, 35 or 40 tracks are hip hop tracks.
1: I don't really pay attention to things like that, Bob. Well, you, I mean,
0: if you look, I don't. I, don't honestly, have this...
1: I don't pay attention to it. I remember when I was invited to the first World Congress of Polygram or something right. like that. And. I was flying from London to Seville, and I was next to the head lawyer of um, Polygram, and he said, so where is hip-hop going? I said, I don't know. He says, what? So, what do we pay you millions, <laughs> millions of dollars for? And I said, I hope you don't pay me millions of dollars. I've never weather-veined um, music. I never made any declarations. You, that's for you to do. I hope that I've created an environment that some kid... Aspires to be on my label, that will be the person that will ultimately change a direction, a safe place for an artist to change the world. And so when you talk about hip hop dominance and that, you're just making, you're just, it's, you're calling its end right now. You're, you're, you I, know. And when, I, I'm not uh, sure af, I am. After something is big, something gets small. I don't know. I just, I don't pay attention to well, big I mean, just to small, talk about some
0: of these issues. I believe rock is dead. Now, you're not predicting the future. You want to weigh in on that?
1: Until it isn't, Bob. Well, Until I, it isn't. Well, what about you, jazz? Is jazz dead? No. Hell no. Are you kidding me? Okay. Jazz is dead? No.
0: Well, I, well, pe- many people Bob,
1: say jazz is dead. Bob. Well, Bob. I, I, only, only, how about this? Only people that are trying to weather vane and put numbers to things um, that need to declare something. Like I said, that's your gig. I don't think, I've never been a part of that. I go to jazz okay. clubs right okay. now. I, I okay, am, so how much do you play music now? Me, play yeah. music a lot.
0: And you play old stuff, new stuff?
1: Old stuff, new stuff.
0: And. Yes. If you, you know, the old Desert Island question, you had to take, you know, two or three records or albums to the Desert Island, what would those be? it
1: yeah, have to be a Zeppelin record, for really? sure. it have to I'm be. I'm surprised. Why? thought it
0: would be a hip-hop record, I'm just honest.
1: Well, you said i get two or three, man. Of course, of okay, course. So well, if, I you're, would gonna, if say... you're saying
0: Zeppelin, which was on Atlantic War, do you have a specific Zeppelin record you want to weigh in on? Two. Okay. Led Zeppelin, two. Yeah. Okay. Live and Lovin', thank you. Yeah. whole lot of love. Okay, yeah.
1: Two more records. I would say they have to be a public enemy record for me.
0: Okay, can Chuck D have another hit?
1: For sure. For sure. But the definition of a hit is something that I've always had trouble with. What is a hit? It allows you to go on tour and engage, ring the bell and engage your audience. And it allows you to have enough um, fanfare for people to go and... Put their hard-earned money to see you live, and to bring a community together. I don't know what a definition of a hit is these days. Well, I would say there's two types of hits.
0: Okay. One is a hit; the track is fantastic, whether it spreads or not. Mm-hmm. Then there's the commercial hit, where it has some level of ubiquity.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's what I what I mean. You, you meant there... this. You meant the latter. Yes, and the other issue. The latter, is... most likely not, because Chuck has never woke. He never woke up trying to do that you have to wake up sometimes trying to do that right to right. get ubiquity right um chuck never woke up do you how f- big a fact do you believe ageism is in hip-hop of course age is, has something to do with it but it's more about a little bit of a, a secret the moment from obscurity to celebrity has the highest velocity that's where the most hay can get made at a certain moment After a certain period of time, there's a certain expectation. You don't get any dap from your friends turning them on to another Jay-Z record. So the velocity is much bigger earlier on a career, which has nothing to do with age. It's the little secret that becomes a much bigger secret. Period of time of velocity, I think is.
0: And since we're playing this game, what's the third album?
1: I'm going to have to get back to you, Bob. Okay, that's that's fine with me. That's a very dear album. Okay,
0: so at this point in time... What
1: about you, Bob?
0: Well, I always say if I was on a desert island, I would bring, and this is kind of a humorous thing, I would say ACDC, Back in Black, and Joni Mitchell, Blue. And one is a very noisy record, Mm -hmm. and one is a very quiet record, illustrating that my tastes are somewhat broad. Now, it's Mm -hmm. funny because... Tastes were broad, then they narrowed, and then in the internet era, they broadened again.
1: Yeah, beautiful. Okay, which I think is
0: great. I mean, especially I think one of the most fascinating things is the amount of hip-hop there is in country music. Mm -hmm. Even people brought up in, you know, rural areas or, or, you know, as opposed to
1: urban areas. Well, Luke Lewis and I started a company called Lost Highway. I don't know if you Uh, remember that. Fantastic, right. So the reason why we founded that record um, company was— that we believed that the society of country was so rigid. But these kids, even though they respected the great songwriting and culture of country, they also loved Kurt Cobain and, and Public Enemy. Mm-hmm. And we were interested in those artists. We didn't get all the way to our mission, but we had, you know, Ryan Adams and Lucinda and Brother Where Art Thou and stuff like that. But we were going to get to the hip-hop Country flavored. Was Jamie Johnson on Lost Hollywood?
0: I Trying to remember. Uh, okay, no.
1: Okay, so
0: in the time you have left on the planet, what would you like to achieve?
1: Oh wow, that's a beautiful question. Um, I would love to continue, you know, parenting and being a, 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 a great um, father to my children and a great husband to my wife. I'm um, a uh, contributor to my community. Um, I feel I'm in the middle of my mission of bringing diversity to distribution and, and helping the labels and, and, and Google and YouTube collaborate and work together, um, sign some more dope-ass acts that change the world, and and um, I'd like to keep contributing. Um in a very positive way, I—I I, I don't know. I think we've really covered it here. We've got your history, got your president. Is there anything that we didn't discuss that you feel a need to to go? There's on a about? shitload of things we didn't discuss, but um, I appreciate your time.
0: You know, this has been wonderful. You've been very open. I've certainly learned things about you that I don't know, and I think mm-hmm. we've humanized you for people who just know you as maybe a dartboard. They make fun of you in Hits Magazine. Mm-hmm. You're working at YouTube. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Lior.
1: You're so welcome. You know, I wake up every morning and I know who I am, you know, and the people who actually know me know who I am. And I never really concentrated or really cared too much about what other people thought about me, especially those that don't know who I am. So
0: Well, I know from previous discussions when there have been people shooting arrows at you, you, you managed to compartmentalize that, not let that bother you. It's always stuck with me because so many people are saying, oh, saying, but not you. Yeah. You stayed with the mission. No,
1: I, I, I want to, you know, I remember when I was in elementary school and because of my funky name and my accent. Well, I where al- does the
0: accent come from?
1: It's a, it's a guttural um, Hebrew accent mixed with speech therapy. They try to get rid of my R. You know, I literally walked around this earth without an R for a year and a half. Wabbit, one. In elementary school, they thought that some, you know, well-funded during the Reagan era or something like that. Um, every Wednesday, they came in and got me for speech therapy, and they thought they could fix my Hebrew R. I, I kept telling them it's a Hebrew accent. Um you know, it's not you only
0: a, lived in Israel for three years. Yeah,
1: but if you if you understand Hebrew, it's a gutter or R. Right. And that's the hardest thing to change. So anyhow, I remember um, wanting to play baseball after school. And because of my name and because of my accent, they always picked me last. And I never got mad, but I chased down every fucking ball. <laughs> um, that I just like converting people based on my work, not yeah. by, you know, all that stuff. So
0: one of the many lessons you've gotten from Leor Cohen today, once again, thanks for being on the Bob Lefsetz podcast.
1: Good luck, Bob.
0: Thank you. That wraps up this week's episode of the Bob Sets podcast recorded at the Tune In Studios here in Venice, California. I hope you like listening to this conversation with Leor. I thought it was phenomenal. I'd love to get your feedback and know if the same is true for you. Email me at bob at left Until next time, I'm Bob Leftsets.